Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up on Front Row, a game changer in the Virginia governor's race. Redistricting takes center stage in the General Assembly, and the CDC signs off on the Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, political analyst Joe Stewart, Donna King, editor-in-chief of Carolina Journal, and Nelson Dower, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, let's begin with the Virginia governor's race. Virginia had been trending bluer and bluer in recent election cycles. No Republican had won the governor's race since 2009. Joe Biden won the presidential race by 10 points, so you would think the Democrats would have an advantage in this governor's race going into it. It looked even more that way when the candidates ended up being Terry McAuliffe, a former governor running to be back in the governor's mansion, against Glenn Youngkin, who is a little-known businessman, private equity CEO, not much to speak of in terms of a political career. But uh, as the race went moving along, things started to change. Uh, there were wins, headwinds against the Democrats. And then Glenn Youngkin really latched on to the issue of education. One of the things that he did fairly early on was come out against critical race theory in the schools. And then Terry McAuliffe helped him by saying at one point during the campaign that parents shouldn't have any role in telling the, the schools how to teach their kids. So the race really went moving in the other direction. And as it turned out, Youngkin ends up winning 51 to 48, but not alone a win for Glenn Youngkin, but a big win for other Republicans in Virginia. They flipped enough seats for Republican control of the House of Delegates. And we saw Winsome Sears win the lieutenant governor's race, first black woman to win a statewide office in Virginia. She's a Jamaican immigrant, former Marine, and was well known. The one thing that people knew about her was that she was a big Second Amendment supporter, had that big rifle right. with her in her main picture. So big news for Republicans in Virginia. Joe, was this a wake-up call for Democrats? They brought in all the big guns. It didn't make a difference. Well, the thing that should be most troubling to Democrats is that they brought in not only the current president, but the former president, and that didn't seem to help build up any and level. vice president. Yeah, it didn't build up any sense of of enthusiasm among base Democratic voters. I give Youngkin his due, even though he's not necessarily a political veteran, he understood, at the very least, that public education issues were critical to Virginia voters. By and large, voters don't cast a ballot thinking, well, we need to do this to send some message about what's going on among voters across the country. They vote on issues that matter to them, and Youngkin understood that. He also accepted the endorsement of former President Donald Trump, but didn't campaign with him, which I think made Great a big point. difference to make sure that Youngkin was identified as somebody that was an agent of change, but not tied to maybe some of the negative sense people have of the former president. No, so what struck you about this race? Well, Democrats should have listened to Joe Manchin. They should have passed the infrastructure bill weeks ago and left Take it at that. 
take the win. And this was a complete rejection of President Biden's agenda. I mean, just look at the very blue state of New Jersey. An underfunded Republican candidate there almost beat the incumbent governor and the very powerful president of the state Senate, arguably the most powerful Democrat in New Jersey, lost to a truck driver spending less than $10,000. So Independence, the under 30 crowd, which should really concern Democrats, switch to Republicans in this election. So unless Democrats in Washington reverse course on their agenda, I think you're looking at a loss of 30 to 35 seats in the U.S. House. I think that's a minimum, really. Well, I I think structurally it's it's going to be in that range, probably a net of two to four seats in the Senate. Um, You know, Joe Biden is going to sit there with a veto pen and, and not much else. Donna, this really was an historic race uh, with the lieutenant governor winning, Hispanic attorney general. Mm -hmm. I think the mainstream media missed it. I think so. Well, there was a a story, USA Today put out a story saying, uh, listing all the great wins for people of color in Tuesday's race, notably leaving out Winsome Sears and and the new uh, Hispanic attorney general in in Virginia. What we're really seeing is exactly uh, what we've been talking about here is that this is a blueprint of what 2022 could look like. Uh, Youngkin led a campaign that was positive. It was forward looking. He went and actually set foot in some of these very red areas campaigning. Some of them said they hadn't seen a candidate there in years and years. And with with places like Fairfax County that are deeply blue, he didn't have to win it. He just had to tighten it up. And he won. He lost Fairfax County by about 10 points where Donald Trump uh, lost it by 25. So tightening up those blue areas and setting foot in the red areas is really how, how they won. OK, we've got to move on. We've got maps now. We've got new congressional maps, maps, new redistricting. Talk to us about it. That's right, Mark. So this week, the General Assembly finished its constitutional duty to reapportion North Carolina's 14 congressional districts now, a new congressional district, and 170 legislative seats. Uh, It was the most transparent process that we've had in history. Uh, This is probably the first time it was done without any consideration for party registration, race, or any other election data. Uh, in compliance with state and federal constitutional requirements and a host of court decisions that have that have um, impacted North Carolina over the years. Uh, just looking at the map, um, you know, face on my assessment is exactly really the same for both parties. There are opportunities in good years and challenges in bad years. And I think that applies equally to both parties. And it's really just like we saw in New Jersey, Virginia, Pennsylvania this week. Both parties need to focus on their message at least as much or more than they focus on the maps. Donna, what was your takeaway from this redistricting? Um, I thought the process was transparent. I liked being, being able to look into the workroom that was largely empty much of the time and watch what was happening. And I liked being have, having uh, access to the maps early um, as a journalist. But I think one of the things that I take away from this is that it's kind of a status quo situation. This map isn't going to be, isn't going to yield significantly different results than we have in the last 10 years or so. But each party, regardless of what the map looks like, gets a monumental win about once a decade. Uh, that happened in 2010 for Republicans. It may happen again in 22. Um, I think that Democrats also get those wins, but it just means that while we are a purple state overall, our blue and our red are concentrated into areas. And when you build a map, that that is basically what you're going to end up with. Will this withstand a court challenge, Mitch? 
Oh, it remains to be seen, and the reason is that the courts keep changing the rules. I think that's one of the things that has frustrated Republicans ever since they took control of the redistricting process in 2011, is their goal the first time around was draw a map that would elect as many Republicans as possible, but also do it in a way that would survive a court challenge. But the courts kept changing the rules on them. So I think uh, they believe that they are following what the courts have told them to do. It just remains to be seen whether the courts stick with what they've said in the past or whether they change the rules on them again. Joe, what's the likely outcome? How many Republican congressmen, how many Democratic congressmen at the end of the day? Well, I think as Donna alluded to, it will depend somewhat on whatever's happening in a particular election year. I think the way the maps are drawn, it seems very likely that a majority of the congressional state legislative seats are winnable by Republicans just based on the demography within the district so lines. So a pickup of one, you think? Well, I, I think we'll have to see. It could be much bigger. If it is a huge red wave, I mean, you could see maybe only three or four of these new congressional districts being held by Democrats. Again, it'll be in large part based on who the candidates are and what other factors are taking place next year. It looks very favorable, at least I think so, at this point. This is going to be a big wet red wave election year. And so we could see our delegation have nine or maybe even ten Republicans. Nelson, close us out in about 30 seconds. Final thoughts. Well, my thoughts are, again, it should get back to the message. Uh, the mistake that McAuliffe made in, in Virginia, among others, was he nationalized the race. Maybe some of these uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans as well should look to the local issues. And also, you have to get progress. I think that this, um, uh, what you've seen uh, recently will also bear some on some of the decisions that are being made, made right now in terms of the budget and uh, other issues that need to get moved forward here in North Carolina. Okay, I want to change gears, Donna. Talk to you about the CDC's ruling this week on vaccine for kids. Sure. On Tuesday, the Centers for Disease Control uh, expanded vaccine access to kids who are 5 to 11 years old. Uh, by the end of the day on Tuesday, they, they were already being administered. You know, a lot of the pedi pediatricians had been ready. Uh, Walgreens has been had been ready to start administering. Um, this dose is less than what they're giving to adults. It's about a third of the of the concentration that adults and teenagers are getting. Uh, Pfizer says that they think it's about 91 percent effective in students. The reason that they're giving it um, wasn't necessarily, they said, about uh, the death rate among children. Uh, there's been 94 deaths among children 5 to 11 due to COVID since all of this started. They said it's more about keeping them from spreading it to those who may have a higher death rate. Um, you know, the couple of the things that are, are that people are concerned about is, one, we don't have long-term results. Uh, children are not small adults. You know, how they respond to vaccines is going to be different than how an adult does, and we don't know what that looks like long-term. So some folks are concerned that with a very, very low death rates, low hospitalizations, rates among children, are we taking a risk with their long-term well-being by giving a vaccine to a kindergartner? Uh, but then again, we also have these vaccine mandates. Are they going to be required to go into public schools? San Francisco is already requiring children to be vaccinated to go indoors. It. New York's considering it. You know, we're talking about restaurants, things like that, children. North Carolina has a religious exemption for immunizations in schools. They do not have, North Carolina does not have a philosophical exemption. About 15 states um, have a religious and philosophical objection, exemption uh, for immunizations in schools. North Carolina doesn't. So how this is managed in schools and in indoors and for municipalities, that's going to be the question. But I think we're really going to see more parents get their kids vaccinated than not. You know, Mitch, talking about mandates, OSHA is coming out for businesses right now 
mandating the vaccine for businesses that have over 100 employees. Yeah, that was something that came out from the, the Biden administration. They wanted OSHA to do this. And we've talked before on this show about how that's a, a compliance nightmare. How do you make something like this happen? The most interesting thing to me about this latest order is that it highlights the fact that so many people within government have focused on vaccines, vaccines, vaccines as the answer to this, rather than saying, let's look at the most vulnerable populations, do what we need to do for them, and then go to the next step. because. Kids, as we've seen, the fact that there are 94 deaths among kids in the population of 300 million people in the U.S., they are not the, the, the focus of what needs to be done to fight COVID-19. And so spending so much right. time, energy, and expense on this seems to be a wasted effort. Mandates really affect businesses. I think there's a $13,000 fine, isn't there, per day, if you don't uh, adhere to the mandate? Well, the fines are coming from the Biden administration, right. and I, I certainly think that everyone should get vaccinated and we should encourage that, but there are two issues there. One is, that will these vaccine mandates that are coming for businesses beginning January 1, will they be extended to school children? Will school children have to be vaccinated? And then the secondary question is, are we going to have these vaccine passports? Because- Right, that's as a you, great question. As you mentioned, in, California and Hawaii already require vaccine passports for businesses. Are they going to extend those to schools? And will the Biden administration also use the U.S. Department of Ed to say, okay, you're going to have to va have a right. vaccine passport for your child? These are things that are being pushed back. Now, 21 states have a ban on vaccine passports. This issue is not going to go away. Joe, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Yeah, I think this feels a little bit like we're getting close to the end of COVID. I mean, we're finally seeing vaccinations now available for children. Will this begin to be a, a pandemic that we're seeing wrapped up? Will these features of well, having to close or restrict business, having to mandate masks, will those start to fall by the wayside? We'll have to see. Will North Carolina's emergency order be finally ended? Will we feel like we're getting back to normal? Some part of it is not just from the epidemiological standpoint, or are we over the disease, but how has it impacted our culture and society and politics okay. to have gone through this, and what do we know to do better next time? Great job. I want to come right back to you. NPR and PBS had a very interesting poll. Apparently, Americans are pretty pessimistic about the direction of the country. Yeah, absolutely. A raft of polls have come out recently, sort of a natural feature of this Virginia governor's race being considered a bellwether for how things are likely to shape up in the 2022 midterm election. D does it matter that the Virginia governor's out, uh, race came out a certain way? Yes, because we believe it does. <laughs> Whether or not it actually does, we'll, we'll sue the test of time. But polling shows that President Biden is really taking it on the chin. His sense of, uh, of accomplishment, even polls have showed now people beginning to agree in equal numbers with those that disagree to questions like, do you think the president is too old? Do you think he's really up for the job? Those kinds of things are really difficult issues for a president who, by all intents and purposes, is to be the standard bearer for his party in an election. People are concerned about his own capacity to be president of the United States. That doesn't bode well for Democrats in 2022. But the, the one that I'm most interested in, Mark, is the percentage of people that say they're beginning to become concerned about their personal financial future. That is a real critical factor among voters. They can say they feel like the economy is not doing well, and that's one thing. But when they start to think like things might be become really difficult for them and their families, that's when they start to become enthusiastic about participating in an election that they feel is going to make a change. You know, one other thing I, I saw, Mitch, is that by party people, uh, Democrats trust elections more than Republicans. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, varies a little bit about based on the outcome. I'm guessing that they probably trust the outcome of that Virginia election a little bit less than the Republicans do. But yes, that is an interesting thing. One of the more interesting pieces also of evidence that's come out lately is among Democrats, only 36% of them want Biden to run again in 2024. That's bad. I mean, I'm sure that Republic, the Republican number is less, but your own party, only basically a third of the people think you should duck, run you again. Think? It could very well be, unless something turns around. There's a year between now and that midterm, but he's got to get something done. If not, he's definitely going to be a lame duck. Donna, your sense on these polls? Uh, I think so. I, th I, I actually am surprised that it wasn't more people uh, being pessimistic, frankly, because in, anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of people are very concerned as we go into the holidays. Um, they are. They feel like COVID has stretched on and on and on, and some of that is due to extended emergency orders and extended uh, efforts to pull more federal dollars into uh, various programs in the recovery part of uh, COVID. But with a 42 percent it's not looking good for Biden. You know, Obama lost the midterm. His party lost the midterms in uh, in 2010, and he was around 45 percent. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton lost midterms in 1997 or 98, and uh, he was he was above 45 percent as well. So it does not look good for uh, the Democrats going into the midterms. Nelson, does the president have time to turn these numbers around? He does, but you know, it's really broader than the president. Uh, to paraphrase William Shakespeare, now is the Here century. You go again. <laughs> now is the century of our discontent. Uh, it really, if you go back on the Gallup polls, last 21 years of surveys, only two times has national satisfaction uh, been above 60%. One of those was in the first few months after 9 11, and then at the beginning of the Iraq War in 20. Uh, in 2003. So you've really had, I mean, the last happy year in the U.S. was 2000. None of our four presidents in this century have been able to figure out what the American people are trying to tell them. I think, again, as we said, even before the election, um, uh, Biden will probably be a a transitional figure. He is not a transformational figure. We are still waiting for that person to arrive on the national scene. No Reagan yet. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. In the General Assembly, a lot of the discussion has been about redistricting, the budget negotiations. Sort of lost in the shuffle is the, the start of a new group that had its first meeting this week. This is a group that's going to be looking into the use and distribution of all that money coming from the feds to deal with COVID-19. Uh, billions of dollars flowing into the state. Republican State Senator Chuck Edwards, who's one of the leaders on this, said that the state has been operating basically building an airplane while flying in the middle of the pandemic. And so he really wants a thorough after action review. And I think this group has the potential to do some good things if it says, all right, this is how we've used the money. How can we learn from this moving forward? Joe? Yeah, in the, in the light of police funding as an issue on the campaign trail, uh, Pew Charitable Trust came out with a survey that showed 47% of Americans believe police departments need increased funding, up from 31% in June of last year. I think as we move into the 2022 campaign election cycle, this is an issue, much like what we saw play out in Virginia, where candidates can talk about it in the context of People want police. They want the response when you call 911. Well, they want to make sure. We saw that in Seattle. It, well, and I think that, that will continue to be an issue. And probably one of those examples of what James Carville said about Democrats needing to go to woke detox after this election cycle and stop talking about these issues in a way that are so derisive in the minds of independent and suburban-oriented voters. Yeah, I, I think a lot of Democrats 
particularly the, from the old school, think people ought to be listening to Carvel more. Donna. So uh, the story that I thought was most interesting this week and really hasn't been very widely reported, uh, uh, something broke this week that showed that state agencies and the Cooper administration helped pay for the WestEd report. Now, the WestEd report is the foundation of the Leandro lawsuit where Judge Lee in Union County uh, is telling the legislature how much they have to spend and where they can spend it on public education during this lawsuit. Uh, basically, the judge telling the legislature how to spend education money. The foundation of that his decision, the West Ed report, was actually paid for by state agencies and taxpayer dollars along with some foundations, which means that Josh Stein, our attorney general, is defending the state against a decision that is based on a budget they paid for. Donna, let me ask you this question. Has the governor or uh, 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 the attorney general talked about this? Uh, it's been very quiet. I think Responded. that there, there's a combination of probably, you know, don't look at it too hard because it's very complicated and maybe people won't notice. Um, but the idea of our, our state attorney general defending the state against something that they funded is, uh, is alarming for sure. Nelson. Uh, the European Parliament's uh, first official delegation visited uh, Taiwan this week. The delegation pledged support for the island's freedom. And it really shows the split between the EU and, and uh, China that's growing. European Union, especially the Western countries, uh, the French, the Dutch, the Germans, they're really fed up with China right now. Intellectual property theft, COVID, the refusal, the refusal to reform uh, state-sponsored economy and aggressive attempts to control Southeast Asia by China as a regional hegemon. Yet what you have to keep in mind is the greatest potential growth in the world in the next several decades is going to be Southeast Asia. Globalism is over. This is a return to history and great power competition. Think, you know, 1871 to 1914. That's the era people need to look back on for a sign. Uh, and you know how that era ended. You appreciate the history lesson, don't you, John? Okay, <laughs> let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My what's up is something called risk-limiting audits. And for people who've been very interested in election integrity, this is something new. It's a, it's a tool that's designed to help review ballots cast, make sure that everything is on the up and up. It was tested in 15 counties this time around in the North Carolina elections. It would uh, take a change in state law to make it something happening statewide. My who's down, the number of students in traditional district public schools. Uh, the DPI put out some numbers showing that enrollment is up about 0.8% from last year, but still down more than 4% from pre-pandemic levels. Meanwhile, charter schools up 4% in the last year, up 12% since before the pandemic. Joe? Who's up, uh, Mitch mentioned this earlier, up the number of people, both Democrats and Republicans, saying someone other than Joe Biden should be the Democratic nominee for president in 2024. And if it's a bad year for Democrats in 22, in the midterm elections, I think that will continue to uh, move. But as the wise philosopher Nelson Dollar once told me about things in politics, they're rarely as good as they seem and they're never as bad as they seem. <laughs> now down is reality. As Microsoft announces, they're gonna move to a strategic business plan, adopting 
more of the metaverse, this artificial reality that companies like Facebook and Apple are adopting. So we will eventually have front row virtually. Donna. Interesting. Okay. Um, up, I've got to say Winsome Sears. That's, she's just so impressive. Virginia elected a rock star lieutenant general, uh, 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 lieutenant governor this week. She is a former Marine. Um, if you've heard her, if you she saw her victory. She went Marines before she was a citizen. Yes. I mean, she's a, a, she uh, immigrated as a child from Jamaica. Right. Uh, a real, you know, good bootstraps American dream story. And I am so excited to see what she does. Um, my down is USA Today, who did not include her in their list of big wins for people of color. Uh, they listed lots of mayors uh, in New York and Boston. Uh, they neglected to include her. They got a lot of heat on Twitter and kind of added her afterwards. Nelson. Uh, up. The Carolina Hurricanes Hockey Club, they were undefeated in October. Freddie Anderson is the league's leading goalie, and the Canes are the top-scoring team in the league so far, so hopefully they'll keep that going this weekend. Uh, in a recent game, Tony D'Angelo scored a Gordie Howe hat-trick, and that's a goal, an assist, and a fight. And he won the fight. Uh, who's down? Uh, the climate conference, uh, the G20 countries issued a very weak pre-conference communique on global warming. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese leaders, Putin and, and Xi, uh, failed to attend. And the commitments so far have been marginal at best. Headline next week. Lawmakers reach Fisher cut bait point in negotiations with governor over budget. Is there going to be a deal? There's going to be a budget. I don't know if there'll be a deal, but they'll have a budget soon. Joe, headline. Hurricane C that Nelson Dollar gave shout out, and he gets to crank that warning <laughs> thing at the start of the next Hurricanes game. I think uh, more counties, municipalities start lifting uh, mask mandates and other COVID era restrictions. Has the governor indicated when he might lift the mandate? Um, I think that it's getting harder and harder to defend, particularly now that we've got vaccines for children under 11. Nelson. Countries put a happy face on climate conference failure. Not much came out of it, did it? Not so far. I mean, they have more to do this, this upcoming week, but, and, and they will have a communique. They'll try to say something positive out of this, but you're not seeing the fundamental commitments to actually move the needle. And President okay. Biden got a nap. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got a roll. That's it for us. Great job, gang. Have a great weekend. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hill. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.